0: Psalm chapter 32. We looked at something similar to this back in June when we looked at Psalm chapter 51. There's a lot of similar themes between Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. The tone, though, I think is significantly different okay? David doesn't really make confession in Psalm 32. He just kind of teaches why it's crucial in walking with the Lord. He talks about the proper way of making confession, and then he really hammers on the benefits of it, the blessings of what it means to confess. So in Psalm 32, David emphasizes the effects of forgiveness more than the effects of his sin, which is kind of what Psalm 51 focused more on. Now, both are necessary, right? In, the, in this idea of confession, we have to understand the effect of sin in our life because that drives us to confess the sin. Okay? Thank the Lord for the whole counsel of His Word that we get all aspects of what this looks like. So read with me. Psalm chapter 32. This is a Psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit for when i kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer i acknowledged you i acknowledged my sin to you I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Father, may we leave today like... Verse 11 says, shouting for joy through the blessing of confession. Not maybe something we would have thought about when we walked in this morning, but Lord, may we see from your word how that looks, what that looks like, how it works in our lives even today. Only you can bring that about. So we pray that you would in Christ's name. Amen. So think about, think about confession with me. I, growing up, I was raised in a Catholic Home. We went to Catholic Church and so confession to me probably means something maybe different to you. It it meant to me you go and you tell all of your bad things to the priest and then you do certain things and you're forgiven. That's not really what confession according to the Bible entails. Now, it also isn't hard for us to believe or imagine or recognize that there's some amount of conflict in most areas of our life. If you've been together with a person for very long, there's conflict in that relationship. Spouses, there's conflict there with our kids in the workplace. uh, Even in our relationship with the Lord, there seems to be some conflict. Now, especially in the context of earthly relationships, there's no one party in that conflict that's completely innocent, is there? As much as we like to think it's all the other person's fault, There's still fault that lies in us and in our hearts. We are not completely innocent. Even when we kind of feel like maybe we've drawn the short straw and we're taking the brunt of all the issues, we're not completely flawless in these things. We we think the wrong things, we say the wrong things, and oftentimes we do the wrong things. And because this is the case, because we respond in conflict usually the wrong way, there's a need for confession, there is a need for repentance and certainly a need for forgiveness. So when a person refuses to admit and confess their wrongdoing, what does that do for the relationship? It hurts it. When a person refuses to admit that they've done something wrong, it harms the relationship. Now, not not always irreparably so, but it certainly has a negative effect When a person continues in that denial, time after time, they dig their heels in and they they puff out their chest and they refuse to admit any wrongdoing on their part, a whole lot of healing is needed in order to be reconciled. However, there's a flip side to this. When a person is quick to confess their sin and quick to ask for forgiveness, restoration is a whole lot easier, isn't it? And It happens much quicker. Seeking forgiveness and confessing our sins, it has a way of, of de-escalating the situation. Not compounding the problem. It has a way of making, uh, the other person in the conflict that much more able to own up to their part in it. Okay? Now this is not couples counseling here this morning, but this is, this happens in all of our relationships where there's conflict. Confession of sin is an essential part of the human experience because it affects our own person, it affects our relationship with God, and it certainly affects our relationships with one another. So, my goal today is not just to make you feel really bad about your sin. Okay, The Spirit is going to do that. I don't have to. But that's not my goal. My goal is not to send you home so that you just confess all of your sins to everybody in your family. But maybe... God would have you think more about doing stuff like that as we kind of interact with the text this morning. Maybe that idea isn't quite so laughable. Because in reality, if we're not moved by what God says about confession in His Word and about repentance and about forgiveness, what is it going to take to be moved by these things? Now, relationships, they kind of rise and fall. On communication and trust. Right? Whether it's with a spouse or a coworker or a boss or a friend or whatever, it's, they rise and they fall on communication and trust. And these things can be built up when we're quick to confess, repent of our sin, or that, that trust can be torn down when we're stubborn and when we dig our heels in and when we refuse to confess our sin. So confession of sin is a foundational truth upon which good relationships are not only created, but maintained as well. Confession of sin. John Stott wrote a book called Confess Your Sins, and in it he says, there's no misery of mind or spirit to compare with estrangement from God through sin and the refusal to confess it in humility. And yet, there is no joy like fellowship with God through repentance, confession, and forgiveness. And I think that's what, Psalm 32 is explaining. We've all found this to be true. It made me think of a story I read when I was younger. Maybe some of you have read it, an Edgar Allan Poe short story called The Telltale Heart. It's really a dark piece of writing. I don't necessarily recommend you go out and read it right away. But that story really captures this idea of the misery that a person feels when there's unconfessed sin in their heart. It just eats away at them. For the guy in the story, anything was better than having to deal with that going on in his head and in his heart. He was, he would have, conf- he confessed his sin, he confessed it and dealt with the consequences because he couldn't take it anymore. Now, all sin in our lives may not torment us like the guy in that story, but left unchecked, and unconfessed, it's going to have a very negative effect on us in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. It is going to take us to places that we would not choose to go, and it's going to take us and do things to us that are not we're not going to benefit from. But like John Stott, in that quote I read, said, "There's a flip side to this, and Psalm 32 expresses this, and we'll get there. But on the flip side, that there, there's no joy like fellowship." with God through repentance, confession, and forgiveness. I read another <clears throat> quote by someone that they were interviewing a mental health doctor and they said 90% of my patients could go home today and live a normal life if they just knew that they could be forgiven of their sin. This affects us in very real physical ways. So look at the text, look at Psalm 32. David actually begins in a very positive place. He said, blessed is the man, happy is the person whose sins are forgiven, whose transgression is forgiven. And so it it fits really well into what is happening in the heart of the person that confesses. Now, notice this person that's blessed, they haven't scaled a mountain to get this blessing of forgiveness. They haven't performed some complex ancient ritual to be forgiven of their sins. It's just a grace given by God. It's a blessing given by God. Verse 5 is going to spell that out a little bit better when we get there. I mentioned Psalm 51 that we looked at back in June. David uses a lot of the same words here. So I want to kind of borrow from those definitions in verses 1 and 2. They're in your notes. You can look at them in the text with me. He uses the word, four words for sin, transgression, sin, iniquity, and then deceit. Really quickly, transgression is kind of like trespassing. You're going beyond the border of where you know you should go. It's an intentional trespassing. Sin is, is kind of like not just missing the mark, like you're pulling back an arrow with a bow and you're shooting at a target and you just keep missing the bullseye. This is like you don't even make it to the target. <laughs> Your bow can't even get the arrow to the target. It's just that's sin. It doesn't even work. The third one is iniquity, which is really David's idea of original sin, total depravity, this idea that we all start sinful. Because of Adam's sin, we are all plunged into that same sin. And then the fourth thing is deceit, which is just deception, dishonesty, that sort of thing. So as we've gone through these, and I've explained them really briefly, I bet it's painfully obvious how well this sort of thing describes our culture at this point, isn't it? And if we're real honest, it's even more painful how much this describes us. The truth is, no matter how many laws that we pass, no matter how many good policemen we add to the force, none of that is going to change a person's heart. That doesn't mean laws are are insignificant or wrong, but those don't address the heart of the people. That's really what needs to change. That's actually God's solution to the problem. You need a new heart. You can't do, you can't obey properly with the old one. You need a new one. You can't love your neighbor the right way until your heart has been changed by Jesus. You won't confess and repent like you should until you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, of his son. The gospel says you need a new heart. It says that you need a new purpose. And these things are given by grace through faith to the one who cries out to God to change them, to save them. So in our text today, not only does David, Lee, David thoroughly describe his sin, he also thoroughly describes forgiveness. He uses three words in verses 1 and 2 for forgiveness. He's, the first one is just forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. Your sin is taken away. It's carried away. It's pardoned. The second word he uses is covered. It's overwhelmed with something. It is blotted out. And the third one is, it says that he he imputes not. That means it's not counted against you anymore. It's not charging the account of the person that sins any longer. So if the truth of our sin should drive us to confession, and it should. The truth about God's forgiveness should drive us to joy. There's forgiveness to be had. The first couple verses give us the blessed result of confession and forgiveness, and verses 3 and 4, they give us the alternative. What happens if you don't confess? So look at that with me. They tell us what happens when we choose not to confess our sins, but instead we try to hide it. This is what Jason was talking about with the kids this morning. I think David remembers, possibly in the situation with Bathsheba and her husband, maybe he remembers when he acted this way. He hides his sin. And what happened as a result of that? When he intentionally kept his sin quiet, when he refused to repent and confess it to the Lord. It says, his bones wasted away. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. His bones wasted away. Other translation says his bones grew old. This is what happens when we try to live a double life. When we try to say we're close with the Lord and we have unconfessed sin in our heart. Our bones grow old. They grow, they waste away within us. It made David feel old, oppressed, and then it says that he made, it made him feel dry. How many times have we felt that way? Dry, like nothing can quench us. No matter the beautiful day or the wonderful encouragement we've given, nothing quenches us. Is it perhaps that there's unconfessed sin in our life? The ebb and flow of our lives oftentimes cause us to forget about things that we need to get right with God about or right with somebody else out about. The ebb and flow of life, the busyness of it, they kinda start to it kind of starts to help us forget that we have stuff to deal with that we're avoiding. When our pride steers us away from confession, David says, The hand of the Lord, how does that feel? It feels heavy upon us. So here's an angle to this that I think that we need to be reminded of for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's this. David's dryness here and the misery he felt of the heavy hand of the Lord on him was actually a good thing. We don't, we don't think about it initially like that. We want to get out from under that as fast as we can. And there's something to be said about that as we'll talk about. But this is a blessing in the life of David. These things in his life demonstrated that, that he was, in fact, a true son of God, that God was not going to allow him to remain in comfortable, unconfessed, habitual sin. It wasn't going to happen. God was going to make him feel that heaviness, and I think maybe there's some, last week we talked about Psalm 23, and David said, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Even though one of those was used to discipline, they comfort him. So yeah, it might feel like the, Lord, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon you, that you are dry. It might even feel like you're wasting away, but better to endure those things, knowing that God disciplines those he loves than to feel no misery and no, no problem about our sin. Instead of fearing the correction and discipline of the Lord, I think we should really, we should fear being indifferent to our sin. Verse 5, God's heavy hand upon him led David to do some very specific things in regards to that sin. says that, here's the three things that David did. He acknowledged it. He uncovered it. He confessed it. These are the actions, specific actions that David takes when the heavy hand of the Lord was upon him. This is how he responded. He acknowledged his sin, he uncovered his sin, and he confessed it. Now, there are really two main problems that David is dealing with here that we all deal with when we sin. And number one is the sin itself. That's an issue to be dealt with. That's an issue to confess. But also, we have to deal with the hiding of that sin, as we so often do. We teach this to our kids, right? Whether you work with them in a classroom setting or something like that, or you have kids of your own, we tell them, look, it's always going to be worse for you if you try to cover up the sin than to just confess it, right? And then how many times do we as adults and parents do that very thing back with the Lord? We have to acknowledge and deal with the actual sin that we've committed, but we also have to deal with how we've tried to cover that sin or ignore that sin. Back to the story with David and Bathsheba. He killed her husband to try to cover his sin with her, and it didn't work out. It compounded the issue. That's still what happens today. How often do we make things worse by doing that? by trying to live a double life of saying everything's okay and harboring unconfessed sin in our life? Or how many times do we try to just excuse the sin or deny the sin or, here's the most popular, blame somebody else for the sin? Instead of confessing it, we try to blame somebody else to minimize it so it's not a big deal and we're wrong. It is a big deal. Doing those things, they do not promote healthy communication, and they certainly don't lead to healthy relationships with one another or with God. So there's something else I want us to see from verse five specifically and what we've seen so far. When David, it's only when David was ready to repent and confess and end this double life that he experienced true forgiveness. When he came to the point where a difficult truth and facing it was more appealing than continuing to live in a lie, forgiveness was waiting right there for him. Now, to to be clear, forgiveness is not this little carrot that God dangles out in front of us to get us to confess and repent. It's not that at all. It's a guarantee. For every person who acknowledges their sin, who stops hiding it and confesses it in repentance to the Lord, you will be forgiven. Pastor David Gusick, I read this week, he said, Restoration was ready, but the confession of sin was the path to it. So, again, to be clear, what we're talking about here in confession is real confession. Not like the false kind of confessions that we hear professional athletes and politicians do these days he wasn't just pretending to have a repentant heart because people who pretend to repent don't confess the way that David describes here confession of sin is more than just a I know I've messed up I'm sorry you're upset that I hurt you kind of a thing it's not a real confession that's not a real apology real confession is speaking the truth about what we've done and who we've hurt, not hiding it, acknowledging the pain that it's caused others, and then genuinely working hard to not continue in it. So if you it's interesting. If you study back the last 250 years or so, and you study um, the awakenings or great revivals in our country and around the world, there's a, a, a thread that ties them together. And it's true, deep, genuine confession of sin is what ties all of those awakenings together. All of those revivals are tied by that. There's always confession of sin around it. But it's really not anything new. You can jot this down. In Acts chapter 19, there's a revival that takes place in Ephesus. It's an incredible story. There's. It starts in that chapter with talking about a witchcraft, and people involved in the occult. And it gets to a point where some of these people are saved. And it says in Acts chapter 19, it says, many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds to the the church. So as people were getting saved, they came up and they confessed what they had done. Christians were getting right with God, and open confession was an evidence of it, a part of it. But it didn't stop at confession. You can read this in Acts 19. Many of these new Christians who had been involved in occult practices had accumulated large amounts of books that were worth a bunch of money. Guess what they did with them? They threw them in the fire. They were done with that old life. So that leads us to understand that their actions proved their repentance. Right? What they did now proved what they believed then. John, the apostle, helps us understand this in 1 John one 9 you You're probably familiar with this verse. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we humble ourselves in confession, God is faithful to forgive every time. David saw it that way too. And he pauses several times in this. You can see that. He pauses and reflects on these things. It's like he's saying, this is all true. I know it. I feel it. I've felt it. And he comes to verse 6. Verse 6 comes as a result of what happens in verse 5. He says, therefore, so knowing that God is faithful to forgive, David is confident that he may be found, that God may be found. And when he says, at a time... When you may be found. I don't think he's re- referring to a particular period of time like only in your thirties or only whatever, this season of life. That's not what he's getting at here. Doesn't mean that like if you miss him during that time, well you're out of luck. I think what David is saying is that in your time of need, in your time of distress, when the waters feel like they're gonna overwhelm you, God is there. You can call out to him, seek him, and when you do, you will find him. He will be found in those moments. I, I actually appreciate how the Christian standard version of the Bible phrases this, this verse. It says, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. Talking about the, the one that who has put their faith in God. The floodwaters will not reach him. They will not overwhelm him. David knew what it was like to feel overwhelmed with the guilt and the weight of his sin. The misery of it, like waters that flood over a person very quickly. But he also knew that God could deliver him out of that sin, out of that crisis, and that he could do the same for others. And that's why he writes this in that way. Verse 7, David uses the word cover or hide again. But it's kind of a different way. Look at verses 1 and 5. It says hide or cover And he uses a form of these words to basically say, "Well, when I try to cover up my sin, I just make things worse. But in verse 7, it's a different sense of the word covering or hiding. He says, when God covers my sin, I'm forgiven. So David now says, you are my hiding place, my covering. God himself was going to be that for him. David couldn't cover his own sin, but God could in the right way. But here's the thing about confession and about uncovering sin. And you guys all understand this because we've all dealt with unconfessed sin and we don't know when and if we should confess it because we recognize when we do, we're going to be vulnerable, won't we? We remove that hard heart, we uncover it, we confess our sin, and that leaves us vulnerable. It's the right move, we know We should do this, but man, it's hard because it opens us up to the reality of people telling us that we need to improve or God telling us that we need to change. It's hard, but David doesn't fight against this. He just helps us understand that when we confess, when we're vulnerable, God is a safe place of refuge. When we confess and when we are vulnerable, we can go to him. And so it's a strangely wonderful thing that the one that we confess to is the one who protects us. The one that we confess our sins to is the one who then protects us. Spurgeon points out that the same man who in verse 4 was oppressed by the heavy hand and presence of God, here in verse 7, finds shelter in him. We no longer hide our sin. We hide ourselves in the Lord. Spurgeon says, see what honest confession and full forgiveness will do. It changes our view of God. No longer are we running from him with this unconfessed sin in our heart. We run to him knowing that he can protect us from the consequences of it. The idea that God is our hiding place is connected with finding shelter in the presence of the Lord himself. And it made me think of Psalm 23 verse 6 last week where he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. David was assured of this. He knew when he confessed his sin, he had a home with God. He had protection in the, in the house of God. So forgiveness is good, but fellowship is better. Forgiveness sets fellowship in motion. It helps restore that. And so in verse 8 and 9, God appeals to his people to pay attention Gain understanding, he says. So prophetically, David here is speaking on God's behalf and he's promising that he's going to instruct his people, he's going to teach his people, and he's going to guide them. And I like the way that the King James translates this phrase in these verses. He says, with my eye upon you, they translate it as, I will guide you with my eye. I think there's some significance in how that's uh, translated I was reading an, an older pastor who's long gone but he he equated this understanding this to the idea of a master and their butler you guys know we don't really have butlers anymore but you guys understand that position it's kind of a servant they wait on him so the butler waits on the master so if it was their job to do that and the master is sitting at the table eating and the butler is observing and watching and caring for the needs of the master all the master has to do is look at the salt shaker and the butler knows to go get it for him. Cause he's in tune to what the master needs. But here's the question. Where does the butler have to be looking to see that the master might need the salt shaker? At his eyes, at his, at his face. He has to be looking at his face. So, consider this question. If David says that God is leading you with his eye, where do you have to be looking to notice where he's leading? At his face. You have to be looking where God is. I think David explains a lot of this in verse 9 when he mentions a horse and a mule. What do horses and mules have in common? They're stubborn. Right? They don't want to go. He says that they have no understanding They aren't attentive to the needs of the one driving them. So what do you have to use? A bit and a bridle. That's how you control them. That's how they know where to go or not to go. And so David says, look, don't be that way. Don't be like a mule. Don't be stubborn. And so I don't want to offend anybody, but I have to ask this question. Are you more like a butler or a mule? Are you attentive to the needs of the master? Are you stubborn? Do I need a bit and a bridle for that reason? Or am I looking into the face of my master to see where I need to go? Do I only stay close to God because of the pain and heartache in my life? Or because I really want to know him well? The difference between the righteous and the wicked is clearly marked in the last couple verses of this psalm, 10 and 11. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked but steadfast love surrounds those who trust the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The reality is the the one who's stubborn like a mule, and the one who trusts in the Lord, they've both got a sin problem, right? They've both been in that situation where they've been covering their wrongdoing, their sin. But the difference is that one repents and turns to the Lord to be forgiven while the other one continues on in their stubbornness, needing that bit and bridle to be told what to do and where to go. The difference is one uncovers their sin and confesses it while the other one continues covering their sin over and over. One acknowledges what they've done in godly sorrow and the other one keeps it quiet in selfish pride. It says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Are you trusting in the Lord with your sin? Are you doing your best to hide it? Confession bears your heart out. It lays it bare, right? You're vulnerable in confession, but hiding your sin just hardens your heart. The good news that David really emphasizes in the last verse in verse 11 is that confession can be found no matter what your history is. No matter what you've done, it can be forgiven Christ. But you know, God's forgiveness, it doesn't come to a person just for them pretending to be good. God sees through that. Forgiveness comes by being real about our sin, about ourselves. So the the truth is, you may need to do some confessing today. Maybe you do need to go home and confess some things to your family. Maybe you do need to confess some things to God, some sin that you've been trying to hide. You've been like that stubborn animal needing to be pulled along that heavy hand of God on you. Maybe you need to confess to another person. Maybe that person is sitting in this room Maybe you need to pick up the phone this week sometime and humble yourselves and stop being a mule. When confession is made and fellowship is restored, verse 11 is the song that we sing. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Christian, rejoice. Be glad. Shout for joy in Christ. All your sin has been forgiven. It's gone. It's it's covered not by your own foolish attempts to cover it, but by the blood of Christ on the cross. In Christ, God has done something for you that you could never do yourself. He has redeemed you. He has restored you. Remember, God doesn't overlook sin in the sense that he just ignores it or pretends like he didn't see it. No, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it meant something. It did. It accomplished something, both for us and for God. In His kindness, the confession of sin leads to confidence in Him and it leads to great joy in our lives. And so I hope that we see from Psalm 32 the blessing of confession. It is a part of our life on an ongoing basis because we continue to fail, right? We can fit continue to hurt ones that we love, sometimes we hurt ones that we don't care much for, confession is needed. Be quick to forgive and be quick to ask for forgiveness. Because when we humble ourselves in confession, God is always faithful to forgive. And he can forgive you today if you would confess and repent and put your trust in him alone it says steadfast love in verse 10 surrounds the one who trusts in the lord you can be surrounded by the love of god today if you would repent confess and turn to him in faith let's pray lord thank you for this reminder that your love surrounds the one who trusts in you And God, confession is is not the thing that we roll out of bed thinking about. It is not the thing that we generally want to think about. But Lord, it is so connected and intertwined to relationships that we must think about it. And if we're going to think about it, Lord, we must think biblically. Write about it. Help us to confess where we need to. Lord, and maybe we don't, maybe we think it's a big thing. Maybe somebody else might not. Maybe they think it's a big thing and we don't. Lord, get us right. Help us to get right about these things. To confess to our brothers and sisters, to restore that relationship, and Lord, also to be restored back to you. Thank you for your steadfast love. Lord, thank you for the joy that we have through the pathway of confession. I pray that we would walk that path today. In Christ's name.